Well, my name is Kyle, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Trinity, and I'm thankful for that opportunity um, and the, the opportunity every week just to speak and to learn together. I don't know if you've seen this. This is kind of a new thing that I've seen online, and if you're not on social media, I apologize. Maybe you've, uh, you've seen this anyways. Uh, but there's this statement that's kind of out there right now. It goes like this. It'll go up on the, the screen. How old were you when you found out that? And then there's a statement, and then people are like, oh, I was today years old. Like, I never had heard of that or seen that before. I don't know if you've seen any of these. So uh, here, here's the first one. Uh, the tag stood for touch and go. Right? Isn't that unbelievable? Has anyone, like you were today, you were today years old when you found that out. Okay, or the next one, that news, news meant noteworthy events, weather, and sports. Nobody? This is today years old. Yes, okay, and uh, the third one, that Arby's R-B stood for roast beef. Right, isn't that unbelievable? How many of you have seen these online? They go around, yeah, yeah. Well, here's the truth. None of those are true. None of those are true. So I, I did some research because I'm one of those when I see something online because so much online is just fake. It's not real. And so I was like, that really stood for touch and go. So you just do a quick Google search and it's not true. Tag is literally, I touch you, I tag you and you're it. That is the name of, of tag. And news is just recent events. And then Arby's, actually, it's the name of the, the brothers who started it. They started their their last name starts with an R, and so it's the Raffle Brothers R-Bs, right? But here's the thing. As you hear those, you're like, that makes sense, right? That makes sense that that would work with those statements, but it's not true. And I think often what happens is we hear things over and over and over, and eventually they become true, right? They eventually just become true for us. We just accept things that aren't necessarily true. We believe them for ourselves, and then we put them into practice, not only do we put them in practice, but we begin to tell other people. And so I'm one of those people, when I hear these things, man, I would tell others, I'm like, did you hear what tag means? It means touch and go, isn't that unbelievable? And I go around and I have these conversations with people, and then I realize it's not real. And it's kind of funny, and it doesn't really matter when it's statements like this, when things are kind of true. But it was just a few years ago, someone on social media uh, that I'm close to, they're not a part of, of Trinity, so... You don't have to try and figure out who it might be. Uh, they, they made a statement about Muslims. And the, the statement was completely false. Completely false. And so I just sent this person a, a, a nice message and said, hey, I just want to let you know that what you posted is not true. It's not true. Here's a link to the article. You can find out the truth behind the statement. And it's not true. So that's, that's good, right? We're going to be on the same page. And the response back to me was, well, it's basically true that it's basically true. Or what they could say is, well, it's kind of true. That it's half true. And so what happens is we often take things that aren't completely true, we make them true for ourselves and even for other people. And, and sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it really doesn't carry weight and it doesn't matter. But then there's other times when it is significant. And that's what we're looking at in this series. Are some of these statements that we have come to believe for ourselves about who God is that aren't true. There's statements that we use to other people, we say to other people, sometimes to try and encourage or to help, but they're not true. And oftentimes they're more hurtful than, than helpful. If you've been around this place, we, we kind of do our sermon series a couple different ways. Uh, one, we'll take a book. We, we did Galatians and, and we were like three months in the book of Galatians and we were really slow. And then sometimes we'll take more topics and we'll take several scriptures that support a topic. 
that we're not taking scripture out of context, but showing that the story of God, that the scriptures, the Bible all communicate the same thing. And so as we're going through this, I'm going to pull several scriptures today that help support uh, what we're going to talk about. So the reason we're doing this, again, is because how do you view God? When you take some of these things as truth, when they're not true, it will manipulate or have you come to an assumption about who God is that's not true. And so if I'm honest, this series probably is more about the character of God than it is about your own life. Like, I really want us to get a good picture of who God is. And then the second one is how we communicate to others about God, that actually it can be dangerous and hurtful. So the statement last week, that God will give you more than you can handle. And it was amazing. I had several people send me messages this week just saying how encouraging and helpful that was that they've gotten to a point where that was more than they could handle in their life. And so they had just been trying to hold strong because they had believed that God, there's no way that God would give you more than you can handle. That God is out there somewhere just giving you all of these things, waiting for you to cry uncle. And when you do that, then he'll stop giving you these difficult things. And so these conversations happen, but this has been uh, wielded and, and, and used to, to hurt people, but not always on purpose. And so you've maybe said this to someone. I've used this as a way to try to encourage. But if we really think about it and we understand the truth behind it, that there are times when there is going to be more than you can handle. And it's in those moments we, we lean on one another and we trust and lean on God and we let go of those times. We don't just attempt to be stronger, but we actually believe that God will be near to us in those moments. And so this week we're going to look at another statement. And I think this is one of the most uh, most used statements that people believe is biblical that is not. And that is the statement, God helps those that help themselves. God helps those that help themselves. Uh, it sounds right. Sounds good. Uh, we've said it so much or we've heard it said so much that we have believed it to be true. But let me just tell you, it's not from the Bible. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, but according to Barna, who does Christian polling, uh, who asked these questions about faith and God and just life, eight out of 10 Americans believed this to be in the Bible. Eight, 80% of people took this statement and said, yeah, yeah, that's in the Bible, right? And so this does something to us. The statement begins to, to influence how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see other people. So is there any truth to it? Is there part of this that is true? Is there a half-truth? Maybe there's a, a quarter truth. Maybe there's a fourth truth uh, in this. Uh, th there is a couple of scriptures that we could begin to apply to this. Uh, Proverbs 10.4 says this, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Or Proverbs 14.23, All hard, hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The truth is, there's a lot of areas in our life when we think that the only thing that we can do, it is probably the most important thing, but the only thing we can do is to pray. And that is very, very important in moments that that is our first avenue as we begin to navigate areas of our lives, is we pray, we communicate with, with God. But there also is this expectation that we will do something, there will be action to our life, that God has called us to something, that we're invited to act, that we're given minds and and hands and bodies and feet to move and to do what God has called us to do. For example, 
if you're struggling finding a job, if you're unemployed and, 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 you're, and you're not working, I would encourage you to pray that God would begin to open some doors. But if it stops there, then you're missing something, right? The, the thought is that you begin to pray that God would give you opportunities, and then you begin to look for those opportunities. So you fill out resumes, and you, uh, you apply at places, and you interview, and you, you work hard. So there is both. There is this thought that I'm going to ask God for help, and I'm also going to do my part. Or your marriage. If your marriage is struggling, please be praying for your marriage. But then also act. Date. Communicate. If you need counseling, seek counseling. Pursue intimacy with one another. These are things that we do. We pray and we work. Or if you're struggling at school, if you're a student, whether you're a junior higher, high schooler, if you're in college, Show up to class. Like That's a good start, right? Show up. You do your work. You study. You find a tutor, and you work hard. So it is important to understand there is this both parts to what we believe, that we have a responsibility in a lot of areas of our lives. Uh, we see Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians uh, 3. I'm going to start in verse 6. Uh, verse 10 will be on the screen. But Paul, we've, we talk about Paul a lot. Uh, Paul plants churches, uh, and then he would write these letters to encourage these Christians. Well, he had talked about how Jesus is coming back. Uh, Jesus is going to come back. And so there were a group of people who were like, well, why do I need to do anything? Right? I, I can just, uh, just basically exist because I know Jesus is coming back. And so in, in 2 Thessalonians, he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle, it does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked at night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to anyone, to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that something among, some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people were commanded and urged to the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There's this idea of Paul is saying, look, we're going to work hard. That Jesus is coming back, but we don't just sit idle. We, we have a responsibility to do what God has called us to do. So we pray and we use our hands and feet. We don't just pray and wait. Well, one of the areas where this has impacted me the most lately, just in my reading and then on mission trip, we took our students to the Civil Rights uh, Museum. If you have not been to Memphis into the Civil Rights Museum, uh, I highly encourage you um, to do that. But one of the displays uh, covers... Uh, what happened in Selma, Alabama. Uh, that on March 7th, 1965, there were those um, who were unable to vote simply because they were black. And it wasn't that they were unable to vote because they were supposed to be able to, but they were all these special rules and regulations and tests that people had to take to be able to vote. And there were groups who would gather together and they would begin to pray. And they would worship and they would call out to God that things would be made fair, that there would be justice in those situations. And in a peaceful demonstration, there was a, a man who was shot and killed in the midst of this. His name was Jimmy Lee Jackson. 
But the people continued to gather. They continued to gather and they worshiped and they prayed and they met again and they prayed and they met again and they prayed until they decided that they were going to march and they were going to walk. And so about 600 people had gathered that day and they prayed and they worshiped and then they marched. Because for them, they believed that God would intervene. But they also understood that they had to use their bodies to make a difference. That they would use their voices, and they would use their feet, and they would use their hands. And most of us understand what happened in that moment. As they were crossing the Emin Puttis Bridge, they were encountered by police officers. Fifty were hospitalized. All of this being broadcast across television. Martin Luther King finds out. He comes, and they begin to walk again. Uh, this continued almost uh, always through the civil rights movement and even today, this idea that people would gather, they would pray, and they would worship, and there was an, a question to God, what do we do? What do we do? We wouldn't simply just pray. We wouldn't simply just worship, but how do we use our lives to make a difference? See, here's the truth. Uh, God isn't waiting on us to move, and then he will begin to do something. God moves and invites us to be a part of what he is doing. He invites us to take action. He stirs our hearts to do something. And what I believe is that people are the instruments that God usually uses to bring about change. And so whether it's your marriage or work, there is this drawing God will put in our hearts to care and to long for what is good and what is right and for us to respond. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi uh, has a prayer, and this is probably one of my favorite things um, to, to think through and to process through. If tattoos were so expensive, I'd probably have it all the way down my uh, arm. Uh, but here's what St. Francis of Assisi says. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Don't, don't let me just pray about peace. Don't let me just talk about peace. But would I be an instrument in the hands of God that I would help bring about peace? Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Oh, that, there's so much in that. Where there is hatred, let me not just talk about the hatred, let me talk against the hatred, but to sow love, S-O-W, that I would put my hands to the plow, that I would put my hands into action, that I would do something about it. Where there is hatred, let me work at love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith, despair, hope, darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is giving that we receive, and it is imparting that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. This is a prayer of action. This is a prayer of saying, okay, God, I'm going to do my part in all of this. But it's not that God is depending on us to do our part first, and if we do, then he will intervene and help us. See, the truth of the statement is God really helps those um, who are unable to help themselves. That, that God comes alongside of those who are trying to do what is good and what is right. And here's a couple ways that we use it, abuse it, and, and why I think it goes against the truth of God. First thing is we often use it not to help people. We use this statement to not help people or to assume things about people. One of the things I love about this community in St. Louis and um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's too much of an um, uh, argument with this, but just the, the union and blue collar is this idea of just working hard. 
just this hard work that, that many of my friends, many of you, I think about what you do for a living. I do it for one day, and I'm like, there's no way I could do that for every day of my, my life. But there's this idea that you work hard. You work hard. You take care of yourself. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you want to get out of the hole that you're in, then you climb out and you do your part. But the more I interact with people, the, the, the older I get and the conversations I have with people, the, the, the statement, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, is great unless the people don't have boots. It's difficult sometimes to really do what you need to do if you lack the resources or you lack opportunities. I mean, what if you're unable to get out of the hole that you're in? And what if that hole you're in is a hole that you didn't put yourself in? What, what does this say about us when we see someone in need and, and our requirement is that they begin to help themselves first? What do we say to the kid who was born into poverty and has nobody to help them? Or the person born into extreme poverty into developing countries with no access to clean water? Do we, do we really believe that God is simply waiting for them to help themselves? And when they do, then he will intervene. Uh, I've done probably 15 mission trips with students and led mission trips even here in St. Louis over this summer. And one of the things we often do is we do these city immersions. And I take students into the middle of, of the city and I give them a sheet of things that they need to do. And they need to, in those moments, basically pretend to be uh, someone who lives on the street. And so that some of the things they have to do is they have to find somewhere they would sleep. So literally lay down next to a building in an alley. Go and lay in that place. How do you feel? Do you think you'll sleep well in that place? What do you think people think about you when they walk by? Uh, I have them go and pick up an application. And this is one of the most interesting moments, I think, for me, is, is they get an application and they have to fill it out. And I don't know the last time you filled out an application. Uh, oftentimes, you have to do it online. So if they don't have access to go and fill it out online, there's a difficult moment for them immediately. But you need an address. Well, what do you put down on an application when you don't have an address or a phone number? And for some of these students, it's the first time in their mind where they think, man, I don't know how a person gets out of that moment. And, and we can talk about how they get into that moment, and oftentimes it, maybe it is their fault, but not always. So do we really think God is just simply waiting for them to do something? If you do your part, then I will intervene. But until you do, you're on your own. I believe by reading the scriptures that we see a God who cares deeply for the people who are unable to help themselves. Psalm 121 uh, one and two, it says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. I love the idea that when the sun is scorching you and you have no way out of it, it says that God will be your shade, that he will intervene and he will help you when you are unable to help yourself, both now and forevermore. So as I read the scriptures, I see that he is a God who cares for the hurting, for those who don't know what to do next. We can see time and time again that God defends those who can't care for themselves. 
and he calls people to do the same. So I quickly want to run through some scriptures. I don't want you just to take my word for it or my own experiences, uh, but I want you to see some of the, the scriptures that I think of when I think of this statement. Uh, Leviticus 23, 22. I didn't say this earlier, but if you're here today and don't have a Bible, uh, there's a Bible around you. We'd love for you to take that. That's our gift to you. The page number to help you out is, is on there. Leviticus 23, 22. This was the instructions. This was a commandment to God's people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. He says, look, when you're out in the field, don't make sure and drop, pick up every single thing that you drop. Uh, don't get the edges of your field. Leave those. And the reason you're going to leave those is because there's some people who could use some help. This is a scripture about compassion. It is even a scripture about charity. That says, look, we are going to give people an opportunity to get what they need. There is the dignity of work. We could see that here, that they still have to come and they have to grab what they need. And they have to harvest for themselves. But they are given a step up. The instructions are, if someone comes and works really hard, then maybe you give them what is due to them. The commandment is, would you give them an opportunity? Would you make sure that those who don't have enough would have the chance to have enough? This is actually a commandment of God to his people, not a suggestion. And then we see James, the half-brother of John. In James 1.27, he says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James, the half-brother of John, who had seen Jesus do all his miracles, who had heard his teachings, he says, look, let's, let's put what the most important thing is in a bucket. Right? We've heard Jesus do so much. We've seen so much. And, and we could talk. We could dialogue about what's most important. And James says, look, if you want to know what's most important, you take care of the people who can't take care of themselves. That is the orphan and the widow. And these were two groups of people who were overlooked. Uh, they had no possessions. They had no land. And they had no voice. They had no rights. Uh, in that day, as a woman, when your husband died, you literally were forgotten about. And so Jesus, in his teachings, we see here the half-brother of James. And 70-plus times in the scriptures, we see God talk about the way you treat the widow. He says, if there are people who are unable to help themselves. And you and I, if we're going to talk about what's most important, if we want to be religious, it is that, to take care of those people. God is described as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, those who are unable to help themselves. That is what God describes himself as. That is the character of who he is. And then if you read in Matthew 25, we see Jesus separating groups of people, the, the sheep and the goats, and he says, there's going to be a group of people that in the end, I'm going to see them. And I'm going to say to them, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I, you saw me thirsty and you gave me something to I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you gave me an invitation. I was sick and I was in prison and you look after me. And the people's response is, when have we ever seen you in that situation? And Jesus says, when you gave me something to eat or to drink or invited me in, and when you clothed me, when you were with me and took care of me, you did this to the least of these. Now, when I hear that, when I hear Jesus say that, what I hear Jesus saying is the least of those are those who are maybe unable to help themselves. 
that the least of those are in a hole so deep they could never crawl out. When you do something for them, it is as if you are doing it directly to God. This is the character of God, and this is what Jesus says is maybe most important. And so the truth is that we see God time and time again helping those who literally are unable to help themselves. We see a woman bleeding for years where doctors try and intervene. She simply touches his robe and she is healed in a moment where no one else could help her and she could not help herself. Jesus intervenes and, and heals this woman. We see a man who is paralyzed and just waiting to get into this pool where there was this thought that you could be healed by the water. And he's sitting there waiting to get in, but he can't get in. Every time he tries to get in, someone else beats him. And Jesus comes up he basically asks, what do you need? What do you need? What is it that you need in your life that you have been unable to do for yourself? And in that moment, Jesus heals him. So again, we see time and time again that God intervenes, that he heals, that he rescues those who cannot do it for themselves. And so when we believe this to be true, you're going to play this game with God often. That when things are not going well in your life, you'll often wonder, what have you done wrong? What have I done wrong that God is not intervening? And when things go well or they go right, you could make the mistake to think it is because you have done what you are supposed to do. And so we play this game, right? And there's actually a term for it. It is the prosperity gospel. And maybe you've seen it or you've heard in this idea Oftentimes it comes with finances. If I just give a little more money, if I just give, if, if I do what I need to do, then God will intervene and do what he needs to do, whether it's health or finances or possessions. It's completely missing the gospel and it misses the character of who God is. So not only do we use it as a way to not help because we might assume things about people that they're not doing what they should do, that maybe there's a reason God is not intervening or helping them, we see that it is the character of God to help those who are unable to help themselves. And then finally, and maybe one of the most important things, is it goes against this statement. It goes against who we are as followers of Jesus. What makes us a Christian? Uh, if you were here last week, I, I told you about my electric story where I had some issues. Uh, it was interesting. I was in Home Depot. I saw my friend uh, who is also an electrician, and he had already known it happened word spread quickly uh, that I was having problems with my, uh, my electric. Um, so if you, uh, if you weren't here, I was doing some uh, work on some outlets. I made a couple of mistakes. Had a very, very small fire. Not a big fire. There's just a few sparks uh, shooting out of this uh, outlet. But this week as I worked on outlets again, I called four different people, four different people who would help me because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. And, and not to be extreme, but, but I was honestly hopeless in these situations. I, I did not know what to do. And so I would take a picture and I would send a message. And everyone that helped me, my father-in-law coming over and helping me, someone just randomly stopping by who was uh, an electrician in their past and two other electrician friends, no one in those moments said, eh, I'm going to need you to do a little more. I'm going to need you to do your part first. And then once you've maybe ruined some things or hurt yourself, uh, at that point, then I'll, I'll help. No, no, no. All four of them knew that I needed help. And so there are some things in our lives that we can figure out on our own. 
There are some things that we can Google and we can search and we can figure out. But the one thing that you will never figure out, that I will never figure out, is how to save ourselves. We, we will never, ever figure out how we can make ourselves right with God. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough good things. So there are some things you will never be able to figure out on your own. And the good news is, that's all right. Uh, so we spent all the time in Galatians talking about the gospel. And we talked about the truth of the gospel. That God absolutely loves all people. He loves us as sinners, even the worst kind. Those who you would think, I don't know about them. Yeah, they do. God does. He loves them as well. He walks with those in the darkest valley. He is the light in the darkest of areas. God is the one who rescues and redeems and forgives. And this is called grace. This is the definition of, that goes against the idea that God will help those who help themselves. I cannot help myself enough to make myself right in the eyes of God. It is grace and grace alone. Matthew 20, just quickly, Matthew 20. There's a parable that Jesus tells. I'm going to read this uh, to you. It won't be on the screen. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. The guy looks for work. He finds people who are willing to work. He puts them to work and says, This is what I'll pay you. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever it is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? The response is, because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when the, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also just received the same. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have been born have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? This is a picture of the grace of God. That if you as a small child went to church and understood the grace of God. If you understood who God was at a young age, you have been living in that and experiencing the grace of God for a long time. I told you the story of my grandparents who at the last days of their life, the last years of their life, come to know who God is. The gift that was given to the child and the gift that was given to my grandparents at the end of their life was the same. We see that God is a generous God and he is a generous God without grace who gives freely to all people. And who is it that he gives to? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, that means without power, without being able to do something on our own, it says Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means at our worst moment, at your future worst moment, the worst thing you could possibly have done, are doing, or will do, Christ knew those things. And that Christ has died for us in those things. So it is that moment when you realize that you cannot help yourself. That all you have to do is to be able to make the statement, I'm in need. I am in need of God's grace. It is in that moment that we receive that, that we understand that God helps us and forgives us even when we don't deserve it. The essence of the grace of God is that he helps those who are unable to help themselves. So have you experienced that for yourself? Has there been a moment where you've realized your need for God, the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the gift of the abundant life now and forever? Maybe today that's a moment where you just confess, I need it, that I need it in my life. It is available to you to receive. So not only do we receive that for ourselves, but then we have to ask ourselves, where is it that I'm not doing that in other people's lives? Who am I not helping because I feel like they need to help themselves first? I hope that you get a, care, a good care, a picture of the character of God. Greg's going to come up and, and finish uh, with a song. But I hope in these moments that you get a clear picture of who God is. That as you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, the picture is of a God who helps those who are unable to help themselves. And he's done it for me, he's done it for many of you, in the gift of grace. And all we have to do to receive it is to admit our need for it. We don't work ourselves back to him, we don't clean ourselves up and reach a, po a point or a moment where God then sees us, is pleased with us, and loves us. Again, it is in your worst moment that God sees you, still loves you, and offers you grace. Would you stand as I pray, and we'll sing this together. Father, I'm thankful that this is a free gift that you've given me and that you extend to my friends, that your grace is something that is freely given to us. I'm thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus, that it is in that that we experience life here and for eternity, and that that is a free gift. I pray that there are some of those areas in our lives, Lord, that we will act, that we will pray and we will seek you, and we won't simply just wait for you to move, but we will ask how you would use us, whether it's our marriage or our job or the needs of our community or areas where we see that there are unjust things happening. God, I pray that our desire would be that we would seek you, that we would pray, and we would work, that we would work hard. But Lord, would you help us to understand that there's not a waiting that's taking place on you, on your part, that you're not waiting for us first to move and then you will. Lord, would you continue to draw us would you point out to those uh, areas where we need to move and to do something? I pray for my friends here today who maybe in these moments would accept your grace and love in their lives. That from this moment on, they would understand that you have helped them when, you were when they were unable to help themselves. I pray in Jesus' name.